and I hope that this will maybe connect some dots with some hunters out there listening that have had different experiences. They've had animals that they've shot that just immediately, you know, they were down in their tracks dead and they've had animals that have ran 50 yards, you know, and there's a difference there. Why did this one die immediately? Why did this one run 50 yards? Welcome to the podcast today. This is episode number 267. If we back up to the fundamentals as hunters, we have a responsibility to make a quick, ethical, and clean kill for the game we are hunting. But sometimes things don't always go that well. Sometimes whether you're hunting with a rifle or hunting with a bow, the animal doesn't die as quickly or as cleanly as we'd like. And we don't necessarily always understand why. Sometimes we feel like we make a good shot. Sometimes we do place that projectile in the vitals. But the animal goes, it flees, and we find ourselves with a little bit of work to do tracking that animal. Today in this episode, we're speaking with Jaden Quinlan, who is the lead ballistician at Hornady. And we're not necessarily talking about bullets and projectile design, although we touch on that later in the episode, and we might talk about that more in the future. But this episode, the goal of this episode and the foundation is to really talk about how do animals die? Like what in their system, what in their anatomy causes death? And how can we as hunters affect those systems? So this is kind of like a base foundation, which I really appreciate uh, because a lot of times we just hear of, oh, I hit it in the vitals. And we say that, but we don't really necessarily know what that means or even understand that that can mean different things. The vitals isn't a thing. It's comprised of multiple systems in that animal that can affect its livelihood. And so that's what we dive into today. I hope you guys enjoy this one and take away something from it. I know that I did for sure. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. If there's any feedback or questions you have for us, you can always reach out by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. And we mentioned that in this conversation with Jaden as well, specifically because we know there's going to be questions from this episode, whether it's about these systems within animals, whether it's about bullets or ballistics, we would love to do a follow-up with Jaden and we want to know the questions that you guys have from this episode. So again, send us the email to podcast at exomountaingear.com, let us know, and we will do a future Q&A with Jaden to tackle those questions. Guys, if you're enjoying the show, it would also be really helpful if you could share it with a friend, leave us a review in iTunes, and generally just help spread the word, helps us tremendously. And thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button to receive future episodes. But right now, let's get going. Let's get into this conversation with Jaden Quinlan from Hornady. Jaden, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah. You joining us from uh, Hornady HQ today? Yeah. Uh, well, we actually have uh, have a new facility that we built a couple of years ago um, and have a big new ballistics lab and stuff like that out here. So uh, it's a couple miles away from what we call HQ, which was uh, you know the original Hornady location. 
Mm -hmm. Um, we're just a couple miles down the road. Um, so I'm technically out at the, the new place with uh, the new ballistics lab we have and, and the new range and all that kind of stuff. So, um, pretty cool. What type of setup do you, this is jumping ahead already, but now I'm curious since you said ballistics lab and that sounds so cool. What type of setup do you guys have for shooting indoors, you know, just control the environmental var- environmental variables? Uh, so the, the lab that we have out here is uh, kind of a cross between a, a production testing lab and a, like an R&D facility. Um, so, you know, as, as we're making ammunition, we're testing it for velocity and pressure and function and accuracy and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we have uh, an enclosed 100 meter range that does pressure, velocity and accuracy simultaneously. Uh, there's a 25 yard um, extension of that type of range where we do pressure and velocity. So if you're doing like handgun stuff, um, obviously there's no need to shoot accuracy on that at a, at a hundred meters. Um, that's pretty much just for the rifle side of things. Um, and then we have a, a function bay where we're doing, you know, general, is it running a gun? You know, the, all that kind of stuff. How, how is the ammo functioning in a firearm, not in a, in a test barrel, uh, and then we also have a 300 meter outdoor range um, that we do testing on uh, R&D stuff, accuracy, uh, terminal performance testing, kind of more of the R&D side than, than production stuff. Um, but it's, it's, it's great, man. I mean, you have all the, all the tools you need at your disposal all in one location and you can really, you can really do some cool stuff. Yeah, that sounds neat. That sounds all sounds awesome. Well, now that we jumped ahead, go ahead and tell us your role at Hornady, and then I want to hear how you got into it. And uh, it's a story now, a little bit about that actually goes back to your childhood. So go ahead and you know we skipped the who are you and what do you do type thing. So fill us in on that and kind of what led you into it. Okay, well, uh, I'm the ballistician here at Hornady, uh, one of one of two. Um, I've been here for a little over nine years now, I guess. It doesn't seem like that long, I guess. You know, time flies when you're having fun. Um, so how did I get here? It's a pretty long story. So I'll hit uh, some of the high points, but, um, I would say I, I have been in love with ballistics for a long time. I've never, I've never reached a point of satisfaction where it was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm done with this and I'm moving on to the next thing. And I think that's, um, that's unique to ballistics because the, the deeper you dig, the more you find, you know, uh, there, there doesn't seem to be an end to it. So, <clears throat> For me, it started as a kid. I grew up in South Central Colorado on a on a farm and ranch down there. Um, I had two cousins uh, that were within a year uh, of my age, so we were all kind of like brothers growing up. And when we were, oh, maybe 10, 11 years old, you know, typical time you get a twenty-two or kind of your first your first firearm as a rural, you know, agriculture kid. Um, my two cousins got 22 long rifles and I got a 22 Magnum. So at, at that time, um, you know, a brick of 22 in 550 rounds was, I think like five to $8 and, uh, a 50 round box of 22 mag was like eight or $10. So by default, I was forced, um, to be more efficient with what I was doing because I, I didn't have as much ammo at my disposal. So that was uh, prairie dogs, coyotes. I mean, you know, you name it, we were, we were out getting after it. Um, so that that's where I, I started, I would say in trying to understand ballistics because, 
you know, my, my cousins, if they ever listen to this, they'll, they'll probably cringe, but they could just spray and pray, you know, with the 22 <laughs> long rifle. If you hit low, cause you didn't compensate for bullet drop, who cares? Aim higher and send another one, you know? Um, but I was, I was really trying to deliberately be effective in as many or in as few rounds as possible. And so I, I had figured out, I was using a duplex reticle was the first thing I had and later saved up my money enough to get a mill dot. Um, but I had figured out what the spacing was at different magnification settings between the crosshair and the bottom fat post of a duplex. Mm-hmm. And then I had, you know, this was kind of pre ballistic calculator stuff. I, I think there was maybe some software out at that time, but not really accessible to the masses, you know? So I, I did it the old fashioned way. Um, I paced off ranges and I would shoot a group and figure out how much drop there was. And then I would take the magnification um, and adjust the magnification on the scope until it matched for the amount of drop I had between crosshair and, and duplex. And then I had this little chart um, that I would use that, you know, and, and uh, you know, like with a, a circle, you know, agricultural circle, it's generally 440 yards to the pivot and 110 to 120 between each set of you know, tire tracks, or maybe it was 80. I don't really remember. That was a long time ago. Um, so I would judge my distance based off how far into the field the target was, uh, you know, between tire tracks or, or how close to the center pivot it was. And then once I figured out what I thought my range was, then I would go to my little chart and figure out what magnification setting I needed to be on. And then I would hold the the post of the duplex and send it. <laughs> so <laughs> so that's, the, that's the early stuff. Um, how did you, like, as a kid... Did you figure that out or did you like, you just, you understood, uh, cause I'm, I'm can guarantee you that there's people who just heard you explain that they don't even still quite get it. But, um, with the second focal plane scope, your, your zoom, you know, your magnification is going to change that distance between uh, your effective distance, essentially between call it your center uh, and that thicker post. Like as a kid, how did you figure that out? Um, you know, I'm so smart that I just looked at it and solved the problem right away. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely joking there. Uh, so obviously you, you, you know, trial by failure, I guess, you know, you, you, you shoot the prairie dog at 50 yards and you hit him by aiming right at him. Okay, cool. Well, then you do it at 150 and you miss low. Well, you repeat that same failure multiple times to really set it in. Um, and you realize, okay, bullet drop exists, you know? So I, I wasn't like prone to understanding the the physics portion of what was occurring yeah i was just observing why i was failing and uh said okay well if if i'm hitting this amount low you know and and i would say even prior to figuring out that duplex reticle relationship thing you know you can kind of almost all people out there that are familiar with that process as a kid, you know, going out and even if it's shooting cans or something, oh, I need to aim three inches high, you know, so you can kind of, you can kind of guess what three inches is worth at the target's distance. Right. Um, so, so it went to that, but that's obviously not enough. When you stretch a 22 mag out to 400 yards, that thing's dropping like crazy. Yeah. So your swag of, I need to be 89 inches high. I ain't going to cut it, you know? Right. Um, so, so that's when I, that's when I started, Okay, well, there's these two reference points I have in the reticle, so maybe I can use those. Well, oh, that's cool. then th- that's when you figure out that second focal plane really messes with you magnification-wise, because you would yeah. you would be successful when you were on you know X power, but then you zoomed in on this one, 
and uh, you missed. Well, why? And then you start to see, oh, okay, well, at a given distance, as I zoom in and out, that thing changes size. Well, mm-hmm. if that thing changes size, maybe I can deliberately change it to the size that I need to be able to compensate for how much the bullet's dropping. So That's cool. So as a um, kid, you like figured out essentially a a homemade on the farm BDC reticle, meaning like, yeah, oh, it's it zoom. I'm hitting, you know, point of impact by holding the thick post at 270 yards, but at 10 zoom, you know, that's cool. Yeah. And, and I think I, I contribute that to that 22 mag, because if I would have had a 22 long rifle, I, I would have just gone about it the way of, oh, I need to be, I need to hold a couple inches higher. And I don't think I ever would have needed to advance beyond that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Just holding hope. Yeah. And then, you know, I, so, so being able to do that, right. Having success in that abstract method of trying to solve that problem, um, just lit a fire in me. And so then I, I started consuming any material I could get my hands on, um, which led to the mill dot, obviously, you know, trying to search that information out minus reading, physics textbooks there there wasn't a ton of information out there obviously the you know the the military sniping community uh, there was some stuff out there there was some novels and stuff you know from vietnam um and you can kind of glean some of that info you know i was probably reading a vietnam sniper novel at one point and saw the term mill dot and said well what's that you know why do they why do they use that thing what does it do and then you know trying to and this was you know this was kind of definitely dial up internet days or pre that. So the access to information, um, nowhere near what it is today, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that, I would say that's where I fell in love with it. Um, and, and that passion continued to burn. I was never satisfied with the fact that something was, I wanted to know why. Um, and generally I would say that the way you go about that, regardless of the subject, it's not specific to ballistics is if you don't understand why something is, <clears throat> but you can identify the, uh, the characteristics or the fundamental aspects of it, you can say, okay, this thing is made up of part A, B, and C, then go investigate part A, B, and C. And if, if you can't understand one of those, then go investigate what makes up B. Continue to break that tree down until you have a level of understanding. And then you can, then you can go back to the more complex, right? Having an understanding of the individual inputs. Um, and so I would say for, for the next decade or more, that's really, that's really what I tried to do on my own. So again, any resources or information I could get my hands on, I was consuming. Um, and then people that you get to work with. I mean, I, I, I absolutely would not be in the position I'm in today if I didn't have the influence of the people I did in my life. Um, so whether that was uh, a guy named Mark, a close friend that kind of taught me how to hunt growing up to um, people that were really knowledgeable in ballistics, you know, you, you can, you can self teach yourself so far, but I think the relationships that you have with people really connect the different paths in life for you, if, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so sure. a really long story short, um, I come from a family of writers. I had done some writing, met the right people, got published in Precision Shooting Magazine back when that was still uh, still being published. I think it's out of out of print now. 
um, that got picked up or, or seen by some influential people. Um, Mr. Bill Gravatt, who was running Sinclair International at the time, um, read it. And I was at a conference that he was at and uh, he said, Hey, I want to, I want to make a phone call, a couple phone calls on your behalf. And, and at this time I was, I was in the military at the time I was on, in the process of getting out. And, uh, and next thing I know, I had some interviews lined up and went around to the, to the different companies that, that had the interviews. And my last stop was Hornady. And, uh, I was getting I was getting offers from I won't name the first companies but I was getting some offers from them and and the interview with Hornady was delayed and so I was trying to hold them off like hey I don't you know I don't want to say no to your offer cuz I don't know what this last one's going to be but I don't I don't have the last one done yet you know playing mm-hmm. this limbo game um eventually had the interview at Hornady and uh, as soon as that interview was done I I knew that's where I wanted to be um so I I came out t- to Nebraska in 2011, I got to work with um, Dave Emery, who some of your listeners may know that name. He's been a huge influence in the in the industry for you know, decades and decades. He was at Hornady for over 20 years. Um, he left a couple years ago, um, but I essentially got to to be tied to his hip for six or seven years. And uh, the amount of stuff that I learned, man, I, I look back at when I started my first day and I thought I knew a little bit of stuff and I didn't know anything, you know, it, yeah. in, you know, in, in hindsight and being 2020. So, um, man, super fortunate to get to do what I do here, uh, to get to have the experiences I've had with people along the way and the things I've been able to learn from them, you know, and, uh, it, I love what I do and, and, uh, hope I can keep doing it and, I, I like being able to explain, you know, stuff like that. We'll probably talk about today, ballistic stuff that is kind of um, abstract or taboo to some folks. You know, they just don't, they know that it is, but they don't know why or, mm-hmm. uh, or what that can do for them. And, and having a higher level of understanding of whatever aspect it is, um, especially about ballistics, in my opinion, makes you a, a better user, a better operator, a better hunter, whatever it is that you're applying that as. The more you can understand that, the better you can do the job. Right. So hopefully we can cover some stuff today that, that will help your listeners be better. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm excited. One quick question going back to rifle scopes. Something we've talked to people in the past. Are you first focal plane or second focal plane guy when you're hunting? I'm front focal plane all the time, no matter what. Gotcha. Um, so I, I have, you know, there's obviously downsides, right, um, to the front focal especially in a hunting app uh, application, um, generally at closer range, you know, when you're trying to zoom out and there's not much reticle left to see. Um, I've just kind of learned to deal with that, I guess. Um, but to me, the, the advantages of the front focal outweigh the disadvantages. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> you gave me the answer I wanted. Steve says that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's like a, that's a very, you know, that's a very political question, you know, are it you, is, yeah. it's like, yeah. are you a minute or a mill guy? Okay. Well, yeah. are you front focal or, or second focal? Okay. We can't be friends anymore. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, no, I, like, I mean, everything seems to be second and then, you know, I'm fairly new to rifles, been a bow hunter forever and, and just started looking at rifle scopes and my mind was like, why the hell is not every single person shooting the first focal plane scope? That right. just makes so much more sense. It just takes away a lot of variables there in the heat of the moment. And I went, I was at SHOT Show two years ago, and I was like, 
I'm looking for first focal plane scopes. I'm, I asked like three different manufacturers and all of them like, Oh no, no, you don't need a first focal plane. This is, you know, you just need a second focal plane scope. And I was like, it pissed me off. I'm like, no, this doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't make sense. So yeah, good to hear that you're a first focal plane guy. I friends. love the concept of first focal, but I'm still waiting for a reticle that I'm completely in love with. To to eliminate the what you said, Jaden, of like at lower magnification, still having like a pretty solid reference point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm still trying need, to crack that I, nut. I think that trend now of like these super wide zoom ranges makes that worse you know but if the you just need like a a good four to twelve or something you'll be dialed yeah you mitigate some of that yeah yeah good point all right well let's with the goal today no you're good you're good i i already have like i'm holding myself back from 15 questions already but we have a goal today okay Uh, at least a place to start with our goal and I really appreciate this as we were talking about the podcast, Jaden, um, you know, I connected with you, wanted to get you on the podcast and had, again, I have 800 questions, but something you proposed to me essentially, and I love the concept was specifically, you know, we're addressing hunters. And so, yeah, we could get, you know, we could talk BC, we could get all kinds of aspects, cartridge design, bullet construction, whatever. But what's most important to hunters is how does the animal die? So how does a bullet perform on an animal? And really, in the end, what causes death? And so that's where we're starting. Like, let's even not even talk bullets for a minute. Let's just go, how does an animal die? Absolutely. Um, And that's where we're starting, which I was super excited about because I didn't want to, this is like product agnostic and all kinds of stuff. We're just talking about like from a base understanding. And again, I think a lot of guys overlook this because they're, they're caught up in the bullet discussion and how bullets perform and how they're constructed and they're missing this foundation. So let's talk about this foundation. How does an animal die? Absolutely. And I think looking at it this way, essentially a backwards view of what's traditional, because traditionally we look at things from the time that the trigger is pulled until the time that the animal is down and we look at it in that order. Um, but if you look at it in this reverse way, it it really changes the perspective. And I think it... it um, it will maintain some attention from the listener that they generally turn off because they've they've just been blasted with that that train of information order of you know trigger to animal down you know oh, mm-hmm. I already know this I, I, you know whatever so but you look at it backwards and and the perspective changes so so like you said originally um, what what causes an animal to die that's that's very important because um, that's our end state right we want to be able to ethically um, and quickly take an animal's life so so what's involved with that well what we what we need to do is um, is we need to figure out what what system we're going to uh, influence to cause death and there's there's different systems and with each of those different systems is a different timeline associated with it and and i hope that this will um maybe connect some dots with some hunters out there listening that have had different experiences. They've had animals that they've shot that just immediately, you know, they were down in their tracks dead and they've had animals that have ran 50 yards, you know, and there's a difference there. Why did this one die immediately? Why did this one run 50 yards? Well, these systems that we're trying to affect. So, so within the body and I'm, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a biologist, you know, this is, I mean, you do a little bit of looking into, uh, anatomy and physiology, and, and this is very basic stuff. So uh, we've got a couple different systems that we can affect um, that, that are 
related to whether the animal lives or dies. So the, the first one is the circulatory system, right? So this is, this is the, the system that carries oxygenated blood to the brain. So that, that consists of essentially the heart. So you have the pump, right? That keeps the system pressurized. And then you have a closed system of pipes, let's call it, um, you know, your veins and your arteries and, and that heart uh, builds enough pressure uh, to move oxygenated blood throughout the body to keep cells alive, particularly the brain. So that's the first one, circulatory system. Um, second one is the respiratory system. So that's your, that's your lungs, your airway, uh, your diaphragm, um, where that exchange of oxygen happens, right? We bring oxygenated air in, that uh, exchange occurs, gets into the bloodstream, and then it, it pumps on, like I said, uh, just a second ago. And then the third one is the nervous system. So essentially the electrical system um, that keeps everything going and, and gives it direction and what to do for organs and muscles and all this kind of stuff. So as hunters, we, we generally, we look at the, the vital zone of an animal, right? So if you look at the vital zone of an animal, we're trying to affect two systems, really. Primarily, we're going for the circulatory system. We're going for the heart shot, right? And the purpose for that is if you can, if you can stop the heart, uh, you drop the pressure in the system, um, the, the lack of oxygenated blood supply to the brain is going to cause death and it's going to cause it rapidly, right? Now, there's, there's time spans associated with that. So if we hit the heart and we, we stop the heart from pumping, there's an immediately loss of pressure in the system. On the other end of the spectrum, let's say we hit uh, some of the pipes. We, we, we poke a hole in some of the arteries or the veins. That's got a slow leak, but the system is still maintaining pressure. Eventually, that pressure may continue to drop to the point where you do have the, the depressurization that causes unconsciousness and, and death. But you can see there's two different timelines, right? The, the heart shot's going to happen very rapidly in a matter of seconds that that animal's going to be dead. And then on the other end of that spectrum, if we just poke a hole in a pipe, say a vein or an artery, um, it could be who knows the amount of time, right? It just much, much longer time duration. So if we go back to that example, well, when I shot this animal, it, it dropped in its tracks and died immediately. And this other animal under almost the exact same circumstances ran 50 yards. So why is that? Well, it could have been, um, it, it could have been the, the timeline of that, that affecting the pressure in that circulatory system. It could have been that. But the other benefit we have for targeting the heart is that the respiratory system is right there with it, right? The, the lungs are typically wrapped uh, around the heart in that same region, right? So if we aim for that area, um, we're, we're targeting the circulatory system, but if any errors occur, um, I, I pull the shot a little bit. The wind, the wind causes me to hit a little bit more left or right than I did. I, I uh, misestimated or, or ranged the target and I hit a little bit higher or lower than I intended, right? We didn't actually hit the heart that vital zone containing two of these kind of operating systems, the, the circulatory system and the respiratory system gives us the best bang for our buck to be able to uh, have an error on our part and still positively affect those two systems enough to cause death rapidly and humanely. Now we said there was three, right? We said there's the nervous system as well. So let's leave circulatory system and respiratory system alone for a second and we'll go to the nervous system. So if you've ever hit an, hit an animal in the nervous system, it's usually an immediate response, right? They just drop in their tracks. So this would be a spinal shot. 
uh, generally where you're, you're disrupting or severing the spinal cord in some way, the lights go out, right? Just an immediate response. Now, the issue with the nervous system is, is that it's a pretty small and difficult target, right? Typically, let's say you have a broadside animal. If you're trying to affect the nervous system, you're, you're looking at trying to affect that spine um, up into the, the brainstem column. Well, that's, that doesn't give you much margin of error. Um, and some people like that, you know, some people um, say they're just out trying to get meat. And, and so they don't want to, they don't want to put a bullet into the vitals and possibly uh, ruin any of the meat that's in there, say from bone fragment or anything like that in the, in the front quarters. So they, they do a neck shot. Um, your margin of error on a neck shot is pretty slim, right? You're either going to miss high over the top or you're going to hit it. Um, but that's, that's the limitation of that nervous system. So typically we try to target the, the, the vital, um, the vital zone of the animal. Um, and in doing so, we, we maximize our, our error potential that we have to work with. Now, another important distinct distinction is the, the difference between incapacitation and death. So incapacitation would be, uh, you've removed the, the animal's ability to, to have the capacity to do something, right? So let's say run or, or movement, um, that back to that heart shot um, example where the one animal dropped right in its tracks and the other animal ran 50 yards. Um, that's a form of incapacitation, right? So the first animal was incapacitated immediately. It dropped in its tracks. Um, why? Uh, it, it could be that the, that the predisposition or the attitude of that animal at the time was very relaxed and, and at the time of impact, uh, the response was it for it to just drop in its tracks where the other one, where, where it ran 50 yards, that animal may have been in a heightened state of alert. You know, it may have heard something or, or it was ready for that fight or flight or freeze mechanism and, and was, was going to try to flight. So as soon as something happened, off it goes. And the timeline it took it to cover those 50 yards was the equivalent timeline um, for incapacitation to take effect due to that uh, lack of pressure in that system and lack of blood supply to the brain and, and down it goes, right? So it's important to understand that, that there's a difference between um, death and incapacitation, especially when we start talking hunting in regard to say like a, a shoulder shot. Some people won't, you know, typically the vital zone is, is directly behind the front shoulder, um, a little bit low. They kind of have the triangle example there of where to aim from the, from the point of the leg, um, some people would rather shoot them in the shoulder. Well, uh, that that gives you the ability to affect the skeletal structure, right? You're breaking down the the structure that allows the animal to move, and it's in the same region that you can positively affect the circulatory and respiratory systems. But what's important to understand is is uh, just because an animal is incapacitated, let's say you break down the skeletal structure by, by breaking down those front quarters from a bone perspective, you break those bones with the impact, that doesn't mean the animal is, is dead because it went down, right? If, if you didn't positively affect that circulatory system, respiratory system, nervous system, the timelines associated with death are gonna be longer. Um, now, generally, you know, if, if, a, if a bullet goes into something, there's going to be some effect of the circulatory system because that system runs everywhere in the body, right? There's, there's veins and arteries that go, go everywhere in the body to supply that oxygenated blood. So even though you might have hit the shoulder, you never affected the heart, you never affected the lungs, you're obviously going to have a circulatory system effect there because there's 
there's uh, arteries and veins in, in the shoulder and, and that region as well. But it's more likely than not that that animal isn't going to die quickly of, of a drop in blood pressure and, and the effect of the circulatory system. So understanding those, those mechanisms that cause death, I think is important for, an under, uh, for a hunter to understand so that he can, he can have maybe a better explanation of, of why he saw what he saw. Because a lot of what happens without, without a, a basic understanding of that is that, uh, let's, say, let's say that first example, the animal dropped immediately, the hunter was using bullet or ammo A. And uh, in, in the second example where the animal ran 50 yards, he was using bullet or ammo B, but those things were very similar, right? Let's say they were the same projectile design, a, a, a lead-tipped spire point design, similar weight, similar impact velocities, right? Very similar shot dynamics but two different results of the animal that that hunter not knowing this information might assume that well that that uh, ammunition a is better than b because the animal dropped immediately instead of running 50 yards and running 50 yards isn't as good as dropping immediately well it it may not have anything to do with that ammo it may have to do with what we just talked about here is is the system that was affected and the timeline associated with that yeah yeah it's there's a nuance there of people often use the umbrella of you hit the vitals. But as, as you've described well there, even saying hit the vitals, you have two different systems. You have the circulatory system, respiratory system within that. A vital shot can affect one or the other, potentially both. Uh, and depending upon that, you're going to have different results. So even saying hitting the vitals is a little bit too, you know, generic, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that maybe helps, you know, I'm sure there's some listeners out there saying, oh, okay, well, yeah, I've had this experience and I've had that experience. And that maybe makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. Um, so, so with that um, kind of covered the, the next, if we, so we're starting backwards, right? From a dead animal, we just talked about the timeline associated for that animal to die. So if we back up a chunk from there, what happened before that? Well, what happened before that was the projectiles impact. And there's, there's kind of three different metrics that are really important that, that play into how that bullet worked to affect the system you were trying to affect. So let's just stick with the, vi the, the traditional vitals, right? Circulatory respiratory system. So you have three things. You have shot placement. Where did the bullet hit in reference to those vitals? You have the penetration. How far did the bullet penetrate in that animal? reference to those vitals because they're at a certain depth, right? And uh, how much did the bullet expand or upset? And because what that does is that takes the energy that the bullet has at impact, which is defined by its, its weight and its velocity. That's how much energy potential it has. And how did that energy get transmitted into the animal? Because that energy transmission uh, affects those those uh, vitals that we're, we're trying to target. Um, so there's, there's, there's two types of displacement in terminal performance by a bullet. There's physical displacement, which is any material that the bullet physically moved by its presence, right? So, so it, it shoved that material out of the way because the bullet pushed through that. The second aspect is temporary displacement. And that is the transfer of energy that that bullet had, um, is going to move outward uh, away from the actual path that the bullet is on and affect the material around it, right? It's just 
big rapid energy transfer and, and it creates like a, a balloon you could view it as of disrupted tissue. So that could be tears, uh, that could be bruising, stuff like that. So, so that's how the, the bullet is, is going to affect whatever system it is. Now we can rate those three that I said, the shot placement, the penetration, and the expansion. We can kind of rate those on, a, on an importance basis. The most important one is shot placement. And, and the best analogy for that would be if I took a, a bullet that has tons of energy, expansion, and penetration. Generally, that's a dangerous game style bullet. Like we make a dangerous game expanding bullet um, typically used for the big five in Africa, right? Stuff where these animals are big, they're beefy, they have really high density bone structures, and we need deep penetration because the vitals are so deep in that animal, right? It's just so big. We need deep penetration. So it penetrates really deep. It expands. So it, it dumps that energy. Um, if I took one of those dangerous game bullets and I shot an animal in the hoof, uh, I'm not going to have the, the effect that I want, but I had all the penetration that I needed. I had all the expansion and energy that I needed, but it had no effect because the shot placement was wrong. And then on the flip side of that, I can shoot, uh, let's say one of those dangerous game, uh, those big five in Africa. If I shot it with a varmint bullet and I put it perfectly in the right spot, I mean, that bullet impacted in direct line with the heart and lungs doesn't matter because I, I, I didn't get the penetration I wanted. So the, the shot placement is king because even if you have the penetration and the expansion or bullet upset that you want, if you don't put that in the right spot, it's not the, the penetration and the expansion don't really matter because it's in the wrong spot. But just because you have perfect shot placement doesn't mean that everything's great. Cause if you lack the penetration of an expansion, you're not doing the job, right? That's the varmint bullet on, on say a Cape Buffalo. So, so they have this trade-off relationship in, in you, ha, you, you can't be absent of, of two and only have one and make things work well. But of them, shot placement is most important because regardless of whether you have penetration or you don't, whether you have bullet expansion or you don't, if your shot placement is bad, it's not going to, to affect that system you're trying to affect. You're not going to have a real good result. So shot placement's king. Mm -hmm. Number two is, is penetration. So we need to make sure that that bullet can penetrate far enough to affect that vital region. So penetration and expansion are tied together um, as one goes up, the other goes down and vice versa. So as a, as a bullet expands, um, the bigger it expands to, the bigger it's expanded or mushroomed diameter or the rate at which it gets there. If it expands super rapidly versus super slow, that's going to affect penetration. And in general, the larger the expansion, the shallower the penetration, the less penetration. And the larger or the faster the rate of expansion, the shallower the penetration. So I need to pick a bullet and, and bullets are designed to do different jobs. Like, like I give the example of our VMAX, that's a varmint bullet. That thing is designed to expand as rapidly as possible as soon as it hits resistance of, of flesh because it's, it's for prairie dogs and coyotes and stuff like that. And the, the other extreme end is that dangerous game bullet, which expands slowly because we need to get deep penetration. So when you're looking at, okay, so shot placement's king. Okay, we're going to leave that one the way it is. When we're looking at penetration and expansion, it, it depends on, on, 
on what we're trying to do. What kind of game animal are we taking is typically the first level of, of, of breakdown. So uh, a bullet that's going to be good for, you know, antelope or deer may not be good for elk because you need more penetration on an elk than you do an antelope or a deer. That's not to say that bullets don't exist that can do both, right? That there's crossover between the two. Um, but bullets are designed to do different jobs. So we need to look at how much penetration do I need to positively affect the vitals I'm trying to affect. So if it's a deer, that's going to be a lesser number than if it's an elk. Um, and, and that's going to be a lesser number than if it's a kudu in Africa, right? So that, that's kind of the, the next level of analysis is how much penetration do I need? And then once you define how much penetration you need, that kind of highlights the bullets that would work for that, that are, gonna, that are designed to give you that level of penetration. So an example there would be, you know, we make, uh, we make a lot of lead core uh, copper jacketed hunting bullets. So spire points, the old lead tip ones that, that were really high application, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and then technology advanced and you started seeing polymer tipped uh, hunting bullets so like our SST uh, that, that give you better ballistics. Um, and then all the way through the evolution of the, the ELDX, some of our modern stuff, those things all do different jobs. Um, and, and in there you have uh, the GMX, the, the monolithic style. So, so that makes a good distinction. So with a, with a lead core bullet, the lead is softer than than copper material, right? So that lead core is going to expand more rapidly than if my bullet was just made out of copper. Now there's some things you can influence in the bullets designed to cause that the, the, the GMX bullet to expand at different rates and to different sizes. But the point is that it, it happens slower because the material is, is um, stronger. Mm-hmm. So, so that GMX is going to penetrate a lot deeper than an equivalent traditional uh, lead core copper jacketed bullet wood. So of equal weight. So you take a 30 cal 165 uh, GMX and, and compare that to an SST um, that SST is going to expand much more rapidly. Uh, so that's probably more applicable for your antelope or your deer size animals, right? Cause that larger and more rapid expansion is going to cause it to penetrate shallower than that GMX where that GMX is going to be you know, in the, in the 20 plus inch range of, of penetration, that's more applicable for, for an elk say. Now I know when we talked um, earlier that uh, one of the things we talked about was different densities of the target and stuff like that. So we, we, we talked about the high shoulder shot versus the vital shot. Well, if, if, if my intention is to shoot the animal in the shoulder, that's another consideration because that bone density in that shoulder area is going to change the way that bullet expands. And if I change the way it expands, I'm going to change how deep it penetrates. So if I'm doing a traditional vital shot, I, I can use essentially any bullet out there, but if I'm trying to hit the shoulder of a really, you know, heavy boned animal, let's say an elk, um, I may not want to choose a traditional lead core hunting bullet that's really a lightweight for its caliber, right? Because likely what's going to happen is it's going to hit that heavy density bone. It's going to expand very rapidly and very large, lose a bunch of energy in doing so and not penetrate to the vitals I need it to. So a better application there might be an ELDX or a GMX that's designed to penetrate deeper. So I guess the long story short is shot placement is king. 
and penetration and expansion are tied together. And you need to pick those based on the job you're doing. Um, and kind of the other aspect of it is, is velocity. So bullets are designed to work or expand in a range of velocities. You usually have a max end range and a minimum range. And the max end range is typically how fast can this bullet go and still uh, expand in a controlled manner as designed and not just blow up. And the bottom end of that spectrum is how slow can this bullet still expand in a controlled and designed manner instead of just poking a pencil hole through. So that, that range is, is important to consider too. Mm -hmm. So you figure out what you're hunting, you figure out the penetration depth you need to affect the vital system that you're going after. That kind of gives you a range of bullets. Okay. All these bullets, all these different types of bullets will penetrate deep enough for what I'm trying to do. Uh, what next needs to be analyzed is, okay, what are the, the velocity ranges that these different bullet types expand within? Because that's going to define your ranges of your shot. Because as soon as the bullet comes out of the barrel, it immediately starts to slow down due to the resistance of the air that it's traveling through. So as you go down range, velocity gets slower and slower and slower. Well, you need to make sure that the distance at which you're taking your shot is within that minimum that that bullet was designed to work within. If not, you're not going to get the terminal performance that you expect from that bullet as it was designed. How much of a handicap or how much of a pipe dream am I living in if I tell you I want to be able to shoot an elk at 600 yards or 60 yards and I want to choose one bullet because I don't know what <laughs> shot opportunity I'm going to get. I mean, that's a realistic, like, absolutely. Steve and I were hunting elk this fall, um, an area that had a burn, like there's potential for long shots. And I ended up shooting a big bodied bullet at 70 yards. Right. I mean, it's, you know, I, I understand the dynamics at play there for sure. It's just to me, I'm always like, well, I have all these variables. I understand kind of how to piece them together, but there's unknown variables. Right. Right. And, and that question is absolutely valid. And I would say it probably happens every hunting season, you know, especially in the Western States. Um, you draw a tag in, in, um, you know, any of the Western States for elk and you don't live there, right. You're traveling out there for hunting season. You've got a lot on the table and it's, it's absolutely possible that you're going to run into a bull elk at 30 yards. And it's also possible uh, that on the last day of season, in the last 10 minutes of shooting light, the only legal elk you're going to have an opportunity at is, is hundreds of yards away. I've, I've had that experience myself. Um, so that's a real and good question. So that's, that's what we designed the ELDX for. So prior to the ELDX, um, most hunting bullets that have existed for decades have been designed and used for what I would call traditional hunting ranges. So let's call that zero to 400 yards. So your SSTs, your Spire points, your GMXs, those bullets were, were designed to work within those traditional hunting ranges. Because this brings up another interesting subject, which is the evolution of long range capabilities of not only the hunter, but the civilian in general. Um, that knowledge and capability uh, and, and having that capability required you to have that knowledge to be able to shoot long distance effectively, let's say beyond, beyond 400 yards. Um, that essentially, if we go back maybe two decades and further, that really existed in the, in the military 
circles only, right? In the in the sniper communities, there there wasn't a ton of call it field application knowledge for long range shooting in the civilian sector, whether that was hunting or recreational, let's say competitive shooting, wasn't a ton of that, right? But what you've seen is this massive evolution in the industry of bullets are better, barrels are better, scopes are better. And because all that equipment has has gotten so much better, there's no longer limitations for the average hunter or the average uh, recreational shooter to shoot long distance. They have all the equipment needed to do it. So the only gap was knowledge. Well, that knowledge gap has been filled, especially with you know the internet and, and the era of information access. You can figure out how to do this now. You know, you could you could you could be me when I was a kid on that farm um, doing things the hard way. If if I was that kid now, I could watch a YouTube video, um, buy a front focal plane scope, and I can take a less than thousand dollars setup for rifle rifle and optic and and consistently hit at a thousand yards right that did not exist more than two decades ago so what what that did that changed the capabilities of the average hunter so the, the average hunting bullet prior to the ldx was for the average hunting application that zero to 400 yards right we're using duplex second focal plane scopes um hold a little light over the hair, you know, if it's beyond 300 yards type thing, but that's essentially our limitation. Well, that's gone now. So what we saw as a, as a trend with the industry is this knowledge was coming, uh, all this equipment supported it and was good enough to justify shooting long range, particularly in the recreational fields. And that bled into the hunting, the hunting world. Guys were saying in that example I gave earlier, got an out-of-state elk tag, I paid hundreds of bucks for it. I took vacation time. I'm out here. It's the last day of the hunt. It's last light. This is the only legal elk. I'm going to, I'm going to walk away from all that time invested and all that money invested with that elk being at 500 yards, because I don't have the capability to do it. That, that situation is gone now, right? We've got guys that are, that are shooting groups at 600, 800 yards that are tighter than traditional hunters were shooting 30 years ago at 100, right? Pie plate at 100 is good enough for a deer. That was kind of an old saying. Pie plate at 600, pie plate at 800 is capable by tons of people out there today. So that game has changed, right? Uh, so, but the problem was that there wasn't a bullet out there intended for that application, not designed specifically for that. So what you saw happening was we need a bullet that is accurate enough to shoot at those distances. Well, that comes out of the match world. Those are, those are the, you know, Botel hollow point match bullets or polymer tipped match bullets. The, the problem there is that those bullets were designed for accuracy and holes in paper or, or hit in steel. There was no considerations in the design of that projectile for expansion for those terminal performance needs that we've talked about up to this point. So we saw people, you know, they were, they were taking longer and longer shots in hunting. And, and there's a whole ethics argument that, that can come with it. I would say, we'll just leave, you know, it's up to the individual. If, if they can ethically harvest that animal um, at given range and, uh, and do it successfully, that's, that's an individual decision. Um, but what we saw was people were starting to use these, these match bullets, uh, many times a boat tail hollow point for hunting. Um, and the problem with that is, is a Bowtail hollow point bullet, regardless of, of who makes it, um, we make them, you know, there's many other companies in the industry that make them. 
they're not designed for expansion. They don't have a mechanism for it. So in a lot of hunting bullets that you'll look at, there's some sort of mechanism that that allows those things to expand. So if you look at an old lead tip spire point bullet, that exposed lead out front allows it to expand. So when that thing hits target media, um, you have a, a essentially a, a deformation that's occurring that allows the, the lead to push that jacket open and expand. You go into the, the polymer tipped hunting bullets like our SSTs um, or, or GMXs, that tip initiates expansion. That tip is able to drive back into the projectile and cause it to open up. So those are mechanisms that cause them to expand. Well, with a, a bowtail hollow point or a full metal jacket, they both kind of act the same, the same way. Um, they don't have that mechanism. And so they're at the mercy of the, a couple different dynamics, but one of the main ones is the target density that they hit. So if you, if you hit something really hard with a boat tail hollow point, it might upset quickly and it's going to tumble. It's going to go end over end tumble as its terminal performance. That's how it's going to displace its energy in the target. Um, or the flip side of that, that, that happens very often is they just pencil through. And so you're essentially leaving a, you know, a 30 caliber hole in the animal with no temporary wound channel. And so you just don't have a, an energy transfer into the animal to positively affect those systems we talked about earlier. So we saw this happening. People were using, using these bullets for the wrong application. They're using match bullets for a hunting application, and it wasn't working well. Some guys will have success on one shot and the next shot, the animal runs off and they never recover it because it just penciled through, right? So we set out, we said, okay, regardless of, of, of where you stand on, on call, it's kind of a, a vague definition of, of range, right? Is it long range? Is it mid range? Is it short range? Regardless of that, people are shooting animals at distances further than they have historically. We need to build a solution that will give them a, a purpose built tool that will do that job. And so that's what the ELDX was. And to your point that I might shoot an elk at 60, I might shoot an elk at 600. I don't know. It's hunting, right? There's no guarantees. We had to be able to build that bullet to withstand both ends of that spectrum. And those two work against each other. So typically, if you want a bullet to maintain its integrity, its ability to have controlled expansion as designed, the hardest place for it to do that is at the high velocities. That's, that's what's hardest on the bullet. That's what's causing it to expand the most rapid. As you lower the velocity of the impact, the, the, the rate at which it expands is slower because it's the bullet's going slower, right? And so the hardest part, you can build a bullet that will expand at extremely long ranges, but if you shoot it up close, it'll blow up and vice versa. You can build a bullet that is so strong, it will withstand those super high velocity impacts at close range. But now it's so heavily built that it can't expand it to low velocity, long range shots. So that's kind of the, the dichotomy that you have to work with. And fortunately, um, technology and bullet design has come far enough and we, we had learned enough um, with, with prior projects that we had worked on that we, we made a go at it. And, and we had a bullet that was, that was doing more than we expected. Actually, it, you know, we would, we would shoot it at 30 yard impact velocity and 800 yards, and it was working on both ends. Um, there was a little bit of a hiccup in there. This is how we figured out the, the heat shield tip. I don't know if, if you or your listeners are familiar with that, but the, uh, the deformation of a, 
of a polymer tip projectile in flight due to aerodynamic heating uh, was affecting the drag, causing the BC to, to be lower than expected. Um, but that ELDX project is what, what highlighted that. So we, we had a bullet that worked fantastic. Um, then that drag thing, we ended up cracking that nut um, with our heat shield tip which doesn't degrade uh, in flight due to the aerodynamic heating. And for the first time, we had a bullet that really, really didn't have a, a limit like you would traditionally view it. So that, that ELDX will, will expand and maintain integrity, controlled expansion at, at 30 yards, and the bottom end velocity window is 1,600 feet a second. Generally, your hunting bullets, their bottom end for a general purpose hunting bullet, those traditional zero to 400-yard bullets, uh, they're going to be somewhere in the 18, 1900 to 2000, 2100 foot per second bottom end range. So you would, you know, you would run your ballistics and say, okay, well, I hit 2100 foot per second is the bottom end for this bullet's expansion. That's 450 yards. I can't take a shot beyond that because the bullet won't expand. Well, with that ELDX, that just got moved down to 1600, which with a lot of, you know, cartridge and velocity combinations, um, that's, you're talking 800-ish yards downrange, depending on the details of the shot and the environmentals and everything. But that really changed the game. Okay. So let me throw a question at you. Um, let me pick a hypothetical. Let's take a seven rim mag, Okay. And mm -hmm. so we're going to shoot, what would that be? Like a 168 or 175 ELDX probably. A 162, um, yeah, for a factory 762. 7 mag. Okay, yeah. so factory 7 mag, 162 ELDX. We want to hunt elk. Same situation. So if I say, I don't know if I'm going to shoot an elk at 60 or 600, you'd suggest that, the ELDX. Absolutely. If, okay. if you as a hunter, you know, practiced and felt proficient in taking a 600-yard sh <coughs> shot, right, that's right. what I would Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm not asking you to endorse shooting at 600. Sorry, I'm just talking sure, about no, at this point. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. my my flip to that is, if I told you, Jaden, I'm gonna go. I I'm, I know this is gonna happen. I'm gonna go shoot an elk with a seven rim mag at 60 yards, and then next week I'm gonna go shoot an elk with the same seven rim mag at 600 yards. Like I know that that's gonna happen. Would you still suggest the ELDX for both of those situations or are you suggesting the ELDX is like a overall, but like if you know you're going to shoot at 60 or know you're going to shoot at 600, I would tell you to choose this for one or the other. No other things considered, I would recommend the ELDX. Okay. If you had other considerations, I mean, obviously that brings other things into consider. So, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe your rifle uh, setup is super light and you don't want to deal with with the recoil of a 162 grain bullet, your furthest shot's going to be 150 yards. Um, go with go with an SST. Go with a, a GMX. You know those lighter options. Those that would be an example of well, there's another consideration here on the table. Um, okay, so lighter but heavier constructed then. The what do you mean? I'm sorry, you were saying like if you go, did you say an SST or GMX? Yeah, so you know if if recoil was a consideration there, because seven millimeter um, factory ammo, we make a 162 in the in the seven rem mag, and 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 that's it. So if you wanted to shoot factory ammo, that was a consideration, right? You're not going to hand load your own, uh, and you wanted something that was lighter recoil, 
picking one of those lighter bullet weights is going to get you that. So because you're not shooting out to 600 and because you are, you know, you want something lighter recoiling, those are your two considerations. Then what would be better than an ELDX would be an SST or a GMX or a Spire point, something like that. Okay. But that's not necessarily because of the terminal performance of the bullet. That's more a shooter factor. I want lighter recoil, so I don't need, you know, the heavier bullet. But you're you're getting you're not um, you're not trading off terminal performance for that lighter recoil. So the the performance of the of the SST or the GMX or the Spire Point at that range window that you have to operate within is just fine. That's what those bullets were designed for. It's, so it's not like you're well, I want lighter recoil and I'm going to have to give up terminal performance to get it. No, because that that bullet's designed for a different job. You know versus the ELDX. Generally, the ELDX is is heavy for weight because we need it for the aerodynamics, right? Generally, the heavier bullet is going to lose velocity at a less rapid rate, all other things being equal. Um, so that, that helps us doing that long range job that ELDX needs to be able to do. So generally, they're all heavier. Do you have a simple formula for calculating the, the recoil based on bullet weight? I remember I, I like the first gun I picked up was a 270 and I think I had I think I had some one, it was 145 grain ELDX, right? For the 270? Yes. Yeah, uh, that, and then I had like a 130 grain bullet. And I, I was like, I swore I could tell the difference between that 15 grains and recoil. Um, is there, yeah, is there a simple formula for that? Or is it just too many variables that you can't really calculate it? I, I wouldn't say simple. I would probably quantify simple as just do it in your head. Um, mm. But man, there's, there's so many calculators and stuff out there that, uh, you do a Google search for recoil calculator and, and you'll, okay. you'll stumble up on something. Yeah. Okay. I haven't come across that yet. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's a couple out there. I know Sammy, um, has, uh, the formula that they publish. Um, that's probably kind of the, the, the standard method. Um, but yeah, you can, if you Google it, you'll, you'll find stuff out there. What's to what's something that you feel like the average shooter would notice a, a one pound reduction, a five pound reduction? I don't know. Um, yeah. I think it, I think it depends on, on more than just that number. Yeah. Uh, you okay. know, I, I think feeling recoil is, is tied into how the stock fits you, you know, where the scope is mounted in your head has to be positioned for proper eye relief. Um, the position you're shooting from, is that sitting off sticks? Is it standing? Is it prone? Um, so even though the, you know, the, the calculated value of recoil may be X, the perception of the person shooting it may not agree with that. You know, you may have two different options, like you said, that 145 and, and a lighter option. Um, and on paper, the recoil numbers should be obvious, right? They're, they're different enough that I should be able to feel what this difference is. However, when you do it, you may not be able to feel it due to your system or, or the dynamics of that shot or whatever it may be. Um, so that, that's kind of a tough one to question, uh, tough question to answer realistically, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk. I, I'm curious. This is something I see come up as, you know, people just talk about bullets, right? And let's, let's continue to pick on the ELDX. Okay. If, you know, we talked before, like it's constructed in a certain way for certain performance attributes in terms of, again, going back to the contrast and kind of the balance, the trade-offs between penetration and expansion. 
So the ELDX is designed to penetrate and expand in a certain way and, and have certain attributes accordingly. But one thing that comes into play is what ELDX you're talking about. Are you talking about 103 grain out of a six millimeter? Are you talking about 143 grain out of a six five? Um, you know, that 162 we talked about or a 200 grain out of a 300 wind mag. So it's like, yes, the ELDX was designed, constructed in a certain way to balance penetration and expansion, but the cartridge, the caliber, the weight of the bullet is also gonna be a big influence there in terms of penetration expansion upon game, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just help, that's not a question, but that's like, help us think through that because it's like, okay, you could say our hypothetical before the seven rim mag and, you know, a shot from 60 to 600 and we're hunting elk, ELDX is great, but what if the guy's shooting a 143 out of a 6.5 Creedmoor? You know, he he's going to have a different set of variables and just to help yep. us understand, it's like, okay, yes, the ELDX or whatever bullet we to pick was designed this way, but especially with this wide range where you can literally have 100 to 200 grain bullet, that's going to be a big variable there. Absolutely. That's a really good question. So if we, if we back up and, and define the job we needed to do, so this would depend on your hunt, right? Are you hunting uh, white-tailed deer in the southeast uh, part of the country where your shots are going to be relatively short range? Or are you out west where you have the skills and your, your firearm is capable um, of shooting longer distances accurately? So that's, that's part number one what is the job we need to do here? Um, uh, so once we, once we figure out the, the ranges that are applicable, um, then we need to talk about what animal is it that we're hunting, right? What kind of penetration numbers do we need to get to, um, to positively affect the, the systems that we're trying to affect. So that'll, this process starts to narrow things down, right? So we have, okay, these are the ranges that I'm going to hunt. Uh, let's, let's take the road of the LDX. Like you said, I, I'm, I'm hunting out West. I feel comfortable out to 600. I, I train that way all the time. I need something um, that will work at 600 yards. We'll expand and work terminally at 600 yards. So that would be the LDX. The other ones are out of the question because those are kind of traditional hunting range bullets. We'd cap those at about 400, most cartridges uh, considered. So we've got, we, okay, we're going ELDX because we're hunting elk. That gives me the penetration I need on elk and the ability to expand out to 600, which I know is a possible shot I might need to take. So we're, we're on to ELDX is the bullet we need. Next is what was the most important part of terminal shot placement, right? If I can't, no matter how good that ELDX is, if I don't put that ELDX in the right spot, none of it matters, right? It's back to, to I, if I hit him in the hoof, it doesn't matter how good the, the bullet is. I'm not going to affect the heart. So shot placement is my next most important consideration. That comes into you as a shooter and, and kind of the whole system considered. So um, am, I, am I hunting in an environment where I'm likely to be able to find a good prone position, uh, well supported with a rear bag and a bipod up front and, and time? Well, if that's the case, then, you know, one of these, one of these heavier bullet, higher BC, lower drag, um, high velocity systems, say, say a 30 caliber Magnum, like a 300 PRC, or like you said, maybe a, a 300 wind mag that might be applicable there, but maybe, 
maybe I'm going to be mostly spot and talk, spot and stock type hunting. I'm not necessarily going to be set up on a good vantage point, you know, where, where I have the time and the setup, right. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm, it's going to be more of a spot and stock type hunt and I might need to take a shot, you know, supported off of a tree or something kind of, uh, difficult to get a steady, good rest. Well, it may be, you may be better off going with, a going with a, a six, five or, or something that's a little bit lighter. That's considering that recoil portion of it. Right. Um, those are things to consider. How well does your rifle shoot? If I have a 300 wind mag and I have a six, five PRC and my, my wind mag is shooting, you know, one minute, minute and a half groups and my PRC is shooting half to three quarter. Well, if that PRC will do the job at 600 yards, the bullet will terminally, um, my shot placement abilities are much higher with that PRC over the wind mag, right? And shot placement is king. So even though that wind mag has higher energy, it has, uh, let's just say it has higher, uh, higher impact impact velocity that would be tied to energy. It has less wind deflection, all these benefits, right. That exist with that wind mag over say cartridge B, if cartridge B dramatically outshoots from a, from a shot placement or a group size perspective, um, I would pick that one over the other on paper benefits. As long as it still does the job, don't compromise with it though. You know, if, if option B that shot better, uh, it only shot better with a bullet that wouldn't work at 600. Obviously don't go with option B. Make sure that you check every box completely. Yes, it will. It will. This bullet will work at the ranges I need it to work. It will work penetration wise on this animal that I'm going after. And then you can start getting into the fine um, separations between which one is a better choice for you in that application. Um, but out, outside of that kind of relationship, shot placements king we've already said penetration is good and terminal performance the expansion of this bullet will work for for its intended purpose shot placement is king so if there's something that is supporting or or going against my ability to have as perfect a shot placement as possible that's where my considerations would start to separate out what to use mm. okay and that could, oh, that could that could be recoil too you know i mean recoil recoil is a big one especially if if it's very unlikely that you can get into a good supported prone position. Cause the other part of recoil is if I, if I can see where I impacted that animal and I, I can quickly recover from the recoil. Um, if, if I needed to take a second shot or whatever it may be, my chances of success are a lot higher than if I have a super lightweight, heavy recoiling system where I'm going to take this shot and this rifle's going to jump so hard that I'm going to be way off target. Uh, when I recover from recoil, the shot was a long enough distance that I had my magnification zoomed up pretty high so that I could get really good, precise, um, point of aim on the animal. Well, after I fire that shot and that rifle jumps, uh, my ability to reacquire that target through the scope with the scope already on a high magnification level, isn't that great. Right. So mm -hmm. in, in a consideration like that, you know, going with something that's a little lighter recoiling, but still will do jobs that are required of this hunt, maybe a better, a better option. Okay. Yeah, one thing I wanted to, for, I think some people to understand is that they don't realize, like say they're, they pick up a gun and they want their kid to shoot it. Like shooting a lighter weight bullet has a pretty significant impact, at least from my personal experience on, on that felt recoil. It mm -hmm. does. Absolutely. Yeah. When you mentioned prior the, the, 
minimum expansion threshold for ELDX being 1600 uh, feet per second. Is that across the line or is there a difference on the 103 grain six millimeter versus, you know, the 200 grain coming out of a 300 one mag? That's pretty much across the line. Um, and, and, you know, I would, I would consider even though the bullet, let's say that six millimeter is a perfect example, that six millimeter 103, say out of a six millimeter Creedmoor, um, can, can that bullet expand at, let's just say 500 yards under X circumstances, environmentals and, and velocity and all that it'll, it'll expand. It's still going 1850 at 500 yards. Let's just throw a number out. Should I use that on a bull elk hunt? Yeah. Right. At 500, probably not. Uh, That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, is the bullet still going to expand? Yes. But that your energy member goes back to, to bullet weight. So, so let's, let's maybe take a quick little sidebar into energy because that's something that's talked about a lot and it's, uh, held in high regard, maybe, maybe not in the way it should be by, by a lot of folks. So energy, some people will make all of those judgment calls. We just went through on what I'm going to use for my hunt based on what has more energy at a given range, right? Well, energy is great. Energy is important. The thing that matters though, is how is that energy transferred into the target? Because I can take I can take a 50 cal 750 Amax 750 grain bullet, very very high BC. It, it retains velocity well, so it's going to have tons of energy, right? But again, if I displace that energy um, by just poking a hole through, I'm di- displacing very little, right? The the as the bullet comes out of the back, any energy it has is no longer being displaced in the animal. It's, it's going on with the bullet. So how you displace that energy is, is vitally important. So if I have, if I have a, let's just pick 150 grain bullet that is going to displace its energy in the target effectively, right? Let's say it goes in, expands, and you find the expanded bullet on the offside shoulder under the hide. That's the optimum, uh, transfer of energy, right? It used everything in that animal. There was no extra energy wasted um, versus a 750 Amax. Let's say it has 10 times the energy, but it just poked a hole all the way through. I didn't, I didn't put as much energy into that animal as that 150 grain bullet did, but on paper that, that 750 Amax would be better if I was judging everything only off of energy. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So that's an important consideration. And back to that six millimeter 103. Um, does it have the, the ability to expand at 500 yards? Yes. But does it carry the energy when it deposits, deposits that into the elk that I need it to, to do that job? Probably not. I wouldn't recommend that you use a 103 ELDX on a bull elk at 500 yards. Correct. That's, yeah. that's, that's getting towards the extreme end of things, you know? Uh, but yeah, that's, that's another point of consideration. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I was more curious on, let's say you're picking the, the one Oh three and you're hunting smaller game predators, what have you, like, is that expansion threshold essentially 600, 1600 across the board, not recommending that you would take the rule that I can take any ELDX as long as it's carrying 1600 feet per second and kill anything. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that was your question. I kind of went on a sidebar. I apologize. No, you're good. Um, yes, you are correct. That bullet will still expand. As the, that's across the ELDX line. So essentially, um, without getting into to, um, 
details, you know, of, of the design and stuff that would, that would tip our hat to how we did it. Um, the, the way that projectile works from an expansion standpoint across that entire line, that technology that we incorporated is the same across all of those bullets. And so that's that, that 1600 minimum. Got it. Cool. Jaden, this has been good. It's, uh, you know, I feel like anytime we get to talk in ballistics, bullet performance, like on one hand, even if I feel like we go deep, we're only scratching the surface. It goes back to what you said prior of the more you find out, the more you don't know. And that's what keeps you interested uh, in ballistics after decades at this point. So I always feel that with the podcast, it's like you can never have a complete conversation. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. It'll be fun to come back um, and listeners throw it out to you. If you have questions you want us to tackle, uh, we would love to address those. I mean, one one of the ideas we've tossed around, Jaden, is doing exactly that. Like, let's get some feedback, questions, hop on here, do a Q&A. So that's something we'd like to make happen in the months to come. So you yeah. know, email questions to us at podcast at exomountaingear.com. But uh, man, today, Jaden, it's been great. Uh, appreciate all the knowledge you've shared so far. And any any resources you want to point people to to kind of help them learn more, whether that's about ballistics, bullet performance, you know, specific to the Hornady line or not, or anything. Yeah. You want to share before we let you go on this one? Yeah. Um, our, our website has a lot of great information on it and, and particularly, um, you know, we talked a lot about ELDX and, and how bullets work terminally. Um, if you get on our website and you go to the ELDX section, there should be a link on there for a white paper that we wrote, um, when, when we designed the ELDX and there's some really good information in there with, with gel photos, you know, showing you the terminal performance, showing you the difference between, um, different bullets and what they do terminally. Um, that's, that's a really good resource that I would, that would point people to. And, you know, there's, there's tons of stuff, uh, video wise, you know, we put out information, um, all the time. So, uh, yeah, there's no shortage of info out there with the internet. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. I lied, Jaden. You you said gel, and it made me think of a question I literally had written down. So we can answer this quick, but yeah. one more. I had written down, is ballistic gel a good and or realistic medium to evaluate the performance of a hunting bullet? And what, what I had in mind there was gel's a, a continuous medium, if you will, whereas impact upon a game, you're dealing with bone, you're dealing with different densities of tissue, organs, etc., so how is gel helpful and how is it limited? And then when you guys at Hornady are testing for terminal performance from a hunting perspective, do you do anything besides gel? Great question. Um, is, is gel a valid representation of bullet performance in a living animal? Yes. If it's 10% ordnance gelatin, that's very important. Um, there's, there's some various clear type gels out there that you've probably seen. Um, I know that there's a lot of people that do like reviews and stuff, uh, videos that, that use that stuff because it's, it's easier to, to deal with. Um, but the 10% or, ordinance gelatin is very important because it has, uh, it has the hydrostatic nature to it or the moisture content, um, that is representative of living tissue. Right. So if we talk at, if we talk at muscle tissue, intercostal cartilage or any cartilage or, or ligament material um, and bone, all of those are a living material and they have a given moisture content to them. Now there's definite differences in density, right? Bone is way harder than muscle tissue, but what, what, 10% ordinance gelatin does a very good job of is representing an average of those. So if you averaged the densities of bone ligament, um, 
cartilage and, and muscle tissue and organ tissue, what you find is an average that's very close to 10% ordnance gelatin. And so typically what we'll do is we'll use that ordnance gelatin for design purposes, right? We're, we're tweaking the design on a bullet and we get the level of performance we want in ordnance gelatin. And then we'll go out and we'll hunt with that bullet and, and attempt as accurately as possible um, to see, you know, what was the penetration? What was the rate of expansion? What did the wound channel look like? Was it representative in the animal as it was in our testing with the gelatin? And what we found is it's very, very close. Um, I, I would say that I, I would put money on seeing a, a bullet's performance in 10% ordnance gelatin and and make uh, estimations on what it's gonna do in a, in a live animal. Uh, I'd, I'd put money on that for sure. The clear, the clear gel stuff. No, it, it does not have the hydrostatic nature that the 10% ordinance gelatin does. It's more like a fishing lure type of material. And um, although it, it kind of feels like the right density and stuff like that, it does not properly replicate um, all three of expansion penetration and uh, wound cavity dynamics. Great. Good answer. And uh, we better stop there before I ask you another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until next time, huh? Well, that's a wrap for now, guys. As you heard us mention, we would love to do a follow-up and a Q&A with Jaden. So if you have any questions for us, be sure to send us that email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Thanks as always for tuning in, and we will talk to you soon.